Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A very good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequencies 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band. That's if you're listening from Southern Africa. And if you're listening from far West Africa, we are on the 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to you. My name is Asanda Mazaunyani, your host for the show, and I'm with Tracer Boomgaard, Tabisole Huku, and Figile Lengwati in studio today. Let's take a look at what's coming up this hour on Africa Rise and Shine. East African leaders urge Burundi to delay the elections. Nigeria's new president vows to defeat Boko Haram in South Sudan. Peace talks set to resume this month. In economics, South African unions meet to discuss power crisis. And in sports, Namibia win Kosafa Cup for the first time. Before we get details on those stories and more, let's get the news with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Asanda. It's unclear if Burundi will heed the call to postpone its elections. Yesterday, East African community heads of state called for a delay of at least six weeks during an emergency regional summit. The summit, which was held in Tanzania, has also urged for dialogue among Burundi's political players to end the violence that has left at least 30 people dead. Burundi President Pierre Nkurunziza, whose third-term presidential bid has sparked the violence, did not attend the summit. East African Community Secretary-General Richard Sezibera. The summit concerned at the impasse in Burundi and the need for further dialogue called for a longer postponement of the elections in Burundi for a period not less than one and a half months. Summit appeals to institutions of Burundi, including its parliament, to facilitate this postponement. Charges against a top Zimbabwean journalist have been withdrawn. The editor of the state-owned Sunday Mail, Edmund Kudzai, was accused of running a Facebook page and leaking secrets about President Robert Mugabe. Authorities were suspecting him of being Baba Jukwa, the man who runs the popular Facebook page. The journalist says he's been working with authorities to try and identify Baba Jukwa after he was arrested in June last year. Baba Jukwa is often referred to as Zimbabwe's equivalent of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. Deputy President, rather South Africa's Deputy President, Cyril Ramaphosa, has arrived in Nairobi on his first leg of a two-nation visit aimed at boosting the stalled peace talks on South Sudan. He is expected to meet Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and former detainees of South Sudan's SPLM party. Ramaphosa and the Secretary-General of the Tanzania's ruling party, Chama Chabma Pinduza, will seek to understand the progress made so far in implementing an agreement signed to reunite South Sudan's ruling SPLM. Ronald Mamwepa. 
during his visit to Kenya, Deputy President Ramaphosa is expected, among others, to meet with President Uhuru Kenyatta, attend Kenya's National Day celebrations before consulting with SPLM's former detainee. Deputy President Ramaphosa will then proceed to Juba, South Sudan, on Monday, the 1st of June, where he will hold meetings with President Savakir and members of the SPLM Politburo. During a meeting hosted in Pretoria early this year, Deputy President Ramaphosa with representatives of SPLM Juba and SPLM former detainees, consensus was reached on how best to strengthen and implement the reunification agreement. The meeting also impressed upon all, all SPLM sections present to remain focused on the reunification of the SPLM as a means to unite in South Sudan and to end the war. In this regard, the SPLM sections reaffirmed their commitment to the full implementation of the SPLM reunification agreement. A possible legal challenge to South African Police Minister Nati Ntleko's Nkandla report continues to be discussed. Main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, said earlier it would consider approaching the courts. The FW de Klerk Foundation would support legal challenges against the report, citing the principle of holding government accountable. Archbishop Desmond Tutu and others have slammed the report. Minister Ntleko found in his report that all the upgrades to President Jacob Zuma's private residence were legitimate and concluded that the president is not liable to pay for any of them. Advocate Johan Kruger is the director of the Centre for Constitutional Rights. There would be two interesting points to consider. The one is the president may well have been unjustifiably enriched in, in, a, in a manner that, that uh, his, his home has been, uh, been developed and built and, and renovated. The other being the duty of parliament and the National Assembly's inability to affect their oversight duty, their accountability duty in relation to Section 42 and Section 55 of the Constitution. Uh, Their inability to hold government and the executive accountable can certainly be reviewed by a court. And I'll be back with headlines at the bottom of the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Thank you, Tracy. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning to you on this Monday, if you've just joined us. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani. The number of Burundians crossing the border to seek asylum in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo continues to increase due to insecurity in their country. More than 9,000 Burundians are now in the Uvira territory in the eastern DRC where they are getting assistance from different humanitarian agencies. Jean-Noël Bamwezwe reports from Kinshasa. Several Burundians crossing into the Democratic Republic of Congo are describing the security situation in Burundi as an unreliable one and say they are not really sure what might happen next. The movement continues then and the number of those people has reached more than 9,000 in the territory of Uvira in the eastern DRC province of South Kivu. Some of those Burundian asylum seekers enter officially through the Kavimvira border, but there are so many others who use unofficial ways and find themselves in Uvira since it's the Congolese territory that's very close to Burundi. 
The humanitarian community is doing its best to respond to those people's needs and indeed all of them are getting assistance from different humanitarian agencies since there are so many needs to be addressed. And according to the spokesperson of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, the UNHCR is taking the operations lead and all the agencies are responding to those people's basics. Even a Dumo. There's no other way of doing it. These are people who need aid, who need assistance, who need help, and we are here to provide it. Whether it's in water, in food, in education, in giving them a shelter so that, it, so that they, don't, they don't have to sleep uh, in, uh, in plain moonlight. Um, so again, we've been working together uh, under the leadership of uh, UNHCR to ensure that uh, all those who are crossing are um, provided the best care possible until the time they can, they can go back home. It's never a good thing to leave your, your home country, so we can only uh, feel for, for those people. Um, currently, there are about uh, over 9,000 Burundians who have crossed into DRC in the South Kivu area. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees is taking the lead on that operation, along with all the other uh, UN agencies and NGOs, national and international, who work in the area. And right now, they're protecting them, ensuring that they have a safe environment to, to, to stay in until they decide, until that time they decide to, 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 uh, to go back to Burundi. That's the main focus of our work right now. The DRC authorities of the provincial government in South Kivu have provided the United Nations High Commission for Refugees with a site, and that's indeed where a camp has been established to shelter all the refugees coming from Burundi these days. Jean-Noël Bamwese Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Will Burundi heed the call to postpone its elections? With parliamentary vote just days away, East African community heads of state have called for a delay of at least a month and a half. An emergency regional summit, which ended Sunday, also urged for dialogue among Burundi's political players to end the violence that has left at least 30 people dead. Burundi president, whose third-term presidential bid has sparked the violence, did not attend the summit. Shingai Nyoka reports. One by one, they filed into the crisis talks. East African heads of state from Tanzania, Kenya and Uganda and representatives from Burundi and Rwanda. South Africa attended as an invited guest, helping to broker peace in this nation for the second time. The leaders have called for the immediate disarmament of youth groups of political parties that have been linked to the deadly violence that's caused 100,000 people to flee the country. It's also urged that Friday's parliamentary elections and the June 26 presidential polls be postponed. East African Community Secretary General David Sezibera. The summit concerned at the impasse in Burundi and the need for further dialogue called for a longer postponement of the elections in Burundi for a period not less than one and a half months. Summit appeals to institutions of Burundi, including its parliament, to facilitate this postponement. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma. Ministers are going to go uh, to Burundi to engage. Uh, given the time, time uh, frame, the engagement is going to be quite intense so that we do not necessarily 
move away from the time frames that are given by the constitution. Summit leaders did not ask President Pierre Kurunziza to step down. They did acknowledge, however, the need for further discussions on the interpretation of the constitution on the presidential terms of office. You need people first to come down to begin to look at this very calmly, to therefore say if this is what is happening, if it is true that there is a, a gray area in the constitution, how then do we address that? It could only be addressed by people who are not very uh, uh, excited, so to speak, who apply their mind uh, very <clears throat> uh, fairly, uh, and then come up with the solution. I think that's an that's issue, because that's an issue that started everything. That issue remains the issue. It needs to be tackled. They'll have a tough time convincing Burundi to do so. The country's foreign minister, Alan Yamitwe. Irrespective of what we are going through, Burundi remains a sovereign nation in the Committee of Nations. And that has to be understood and respected. You know, and if you fail to recognize the decision, a ruling made by a court, whichever court in Burundi, then you are questioning the ruling of all the courts in Burundi. Polls apart on the constitution, but Burundi says it's open to consider the poll extensions. It's up to the political parties and to all the stakeholders involved in the election to agree on that proposal and then move forward. Uh, what I'm saying is that the government will not be a bloc if the sides, all the sides agree. While Burundi remains in a fragile state, South Africa and the East African community are confident that having brokered peace in an almost impossible situation 10 years ago, that now too they can bring back the country from the brink. Amshingai Nyoka in Dar es Salaam. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa arrived in Nairobi on Sunday in what is his first leg of a two-nation visit aimed at boosting the stalled talks on South Sudan. He is expected to meet Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta and former detainees of South Sudan's SPLM party. Together with the Secretary General of the Tanzania's ruling party, Chama Chama Pinduzi, the leaders will seek to understand the progress made so far in implementing an agreement signed to reunite South Sudan's ruling SPLM. Sarah Kimani has more. In Kenya, Ramaphosa will meet President Uhuru Kenyatta as well as former South Sudan's political detainees who were released to Kenya weeks after a civil war broke out 18 months ago. South Africa and Tanzania spearheaded the signing of an agreement to reunite the ruling SPLM while East Africa's regional bloc IGAD is leading the now-stalled Addis Ababa talks. The two initiatives will be merged according to President Uhuru Kenyatta. The IGAD process will resume again on the 7th of next month, the process of trying to bring peace and stability to our brothers in South Sudan. And today, as we initiate this process, and I want to be very clear that this is not a conclusion, but again, a reignition, a joining of two processes that have been complementary, again in the hope of trying to ensure that the people of South Sudan are able to benefit, are able to enjoy the freedom, the prosperity that independence should have brought to them in the first instance. Ramaphosa will be hoping to give fresh impetus to the stalled peace process. In South Sudan, he will hold meetings with President Salva Kiel and members of the SPLM Politburo.
With peace talks now stalled, there are fears that the country could dip into further crisis as most aid agencies operating in the country are short of funds, largely due to waning international interest in the country. Sarah Kimani, Juba, South Sudan. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, says the lives of nearly a quarter of a million children are at significant risk as food and nutrition security rapidly deteriorate in parts of South Sudan. UNICEF continues to warn that children trapped by fighting without access to basic medical services and food will struggle to survive this lean season without an urgent resumption of humanitarian assistance in conflict-affected areas. Child malnutrition rates remain above the emergency threshold of 15% in both conflict-affected and high-burden states. For more on this, Humuzo Mupulani spoke to Vilma Taira, UNICEF's Chief of Nutrition in South Sudan. As you are aware, the latest integrated phase classification came out, the IPC, which basically determined the food security situation in the country. The latest release came out yesterday, it was released by the government, and basically indicates that the malnutrition rate in the country remain above the emergency level, which is, you know, recognized as very critical. This means that tens of thousands of children in South Sudan remain at risk of dying from acute malnutrition. Accordingly, the high levels of need and complexity in the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan, children are especially vulnerable to disease outbreaks, food insecurity, and malnutrition. As a result, the need is to speed up and continue the uh, response to address the malnutrition situation is really critical because children with severe acute malnutrition are nine times more at risk of dying than healthy children. And again, according to this IPC technical um, group, it has shown that more and more people are facing severe food insecurity uh, and the number has doubled um, since, since the start of last year. What can you say about this? Correct. As you are fully aware, it's the worsening of the conflict, and as the conflict continues, the population is not able to plant the land and accordingly not able to harvest. Additionally, because of the uh, economic worsening of the economic situation, people are not able to afford to buy food because not only it's not available, but also it's not affordable. With the movement of uh, people from their uh, homes uh, becoming uh, displaced, also access to markets have become very limited. So as such, you will see the increase in the numbers. Families are displaced, people cannot afford to buy food, supplies are very limited, and also the cost is going very high with the dollarized. Last year, UNICEF, together with a number of non-governmental organizations, provided aid and treated more children uh, more than ever for malnutrition. Of course, this nutrition scale-up program and rapid response mission still continue this year, uh, but there has been talks that the funding this year is shortfall of 75%. Is UNICEF going to cope in this instance? UNICEF continues to appeal on behalf of the children of South Sudan to raise money to ensure that we are providing the life-saving commodities and services to children. Accordingly, we were very fortunate that uh, the donors have responded very generously last year to the emergency, which helped us carry over some funding through this year. So we, in terms of supplies and commodities, we are pretty secure to the end of the year. However, for next year, in order to be in a similar situation, we will continue to appeal to the donors to support 
and the donors are responding. Funding is coming. It's not coming as fast as we want it to, but you know, with this, we continue to appear because we will really want to continue what we have been doing and to continue to ensure that we sustain what we have achieved last year. We do not provide direct interventions. As you know, we work directly through implementing partners, through NGOs, government, and uh, international and national NGOs. However, you know, as the security situation increases, some partners uh, withdrawing temporarily, but, you know, we support them to come back as uh, the security situation improves. However, we have another mechanism that UNICEF uh, intervened to ensure that services are, are um, not interrupted for the needy population, and we do this through what we call the rapid response mechanism, where we go in with teams from our staff that go in, they fly in for a short period of time, uh, and where they provide the necessary uh, support for the displaced populations. That's Vilma Tyler, UN Children's Fund's Chief of Nutrition in South Sudan, talking to Humuzomu Pulani. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a brand new music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning to you if you've just joined us. My name is Asanda Matzaunyani. Nigeria's newly elected president, Muhammadu Buhari, has vowed to defeat Boko Haram and restore trust in the country's institutions. Delivering his inaugural address at his appointment ceremony on Friday, Buhari said Nigeria will work towards the development of the continent. The inauguration was attended by, amongst others, South African President Jacob Zuma, African Union Chairperson Robert Mugabe, and UN Secretary, or U.S. Secretary of State, rather, John Kerry. Here's Busichi Mombe. The great majority of Nigeria's 180 million population were focused on Eagle Square in the capital, Abuja. There, the baton of power was being passed from outgoing President Goodluck Jonathan to his successor, General Muhammadu Buhari. I, Muhammadu Buhari, solemnly swear that I will be faithful and bear two allegiance to the Federal Republic of Nigeria. So help me God. Buhari assumes office in a country riddled with huge challenges. In his inaugural speech, the new president spoke to a number of the key issues that his administration will prioritize. Insurgent group Boko Haram is in the president's sights for elimination. We cannot claim to have defeated Boko Haram without rescuing the Chibok girls and all other innocent persons held hostages by the insurgents. This government will do all it can 
to rescue them alive. The new president has also urged his countrymen to be united in order to overcome the country's economic problems. With depleted foreign reserves, foreign oil prices, leakages and debts, the Nigerian economy is in deep trouble and will require careful management to bring it around and to tackle the immediate challenges confronting us. Corruption, particularly at state and local level, as well as fuel and power shortages, are issues that Buhari has vowed to find long-term solutions to. The event was festive, a 21-gun salute, and the release of doves and hundreds of green and white balloons, all part of the program. Amongst African leaders attending was President Jacob Zuma, who said he's impressed at the cordial changeover of government in Nigeria following the March 28 elections. It is important that we needed to stay together, consult more, and we have agreed on this, even to a point that we thought uh, we should perhaps try to exchange state, of, um, state, I mean, state visits as early as possible so that we can have more time to discuss some of the challenges and pertinent issues in the continent. The optimism amongst ordinary Nigerians regarding their new ruler is due to a large part in their belief in his stated zero tolerance to corruption and his disciplinarian approach. He will need these qualities to steer his country through what will surely be choppy waters. That report by Busi Chimombe. The International Conference on the Protection of Civilians took place in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, over the weekend. Delegates at the conference discussed ways to effectively implement UN mandates to protect civilians in conflict-torn regions. From Kigali, Silvanus Karimera reports. The two days conference, which came to an end over the weekend, brought together top 32 contributing countries in the world. Others included top 10 financial contributing countries and other stakeholders in the mission. Delegates declared lack of trained and well-equipped troops, inconsistency in mandate in regard to the protection of civilians, and lack of enough logistics. Speaking during the event, President Paul Kagame said Africa is a leader in peacekeeping missions, though it's not a matter of boast. Africa is now the biggest UN troop contributor, but this is nothing to boast about given that 80% of the world's peacekeepers are also deployed on the continent. Discussions dwelt so much on areas where Africa has been far short and asked the international community to act on its promise prior to any deployment. This is Major General Jambos Kokazura, former commander of the United Nations peacekeeping mission in Mali. I think it will continue to take long if all of us we are not put our efforts together to make sure this, this, kind, of, uh, this kind of problems are, are sorted out. Because I believe, first of all, we need to start by looking at the causes of this conflict. Then see how we can find a solution even before it happens. Because I believe sometimes we have many indicators of what is going to happen here and there. But we wait until something happens and we go there like firefighters. But the United Nations representative in Rwanda... Lamine Mane made it clear about how the United Nations goes about dealing with conflicts. 
Our task in the international community is not just managing conflicts, but helping to prevent and end those conflicts. But how do they help in preventing conflicts as the influx of Burundian refugees continue to power into neighboring countries? Major General Jambo Sokazura says the UN may get lost in rhetorics while innocent lives are wiped out. In 1945, people were talking about never again. But we still have problems in different areas. Never again was never, never again. However, at the end of the conference, a number of resolutions were adopted, including training all troops on the protection of civilians prior to their deployment to missions to ensure sector and contingent commanders as well as nominees for missions leadership positions have a high level of training and preparedness on peacekeeping operations. They also adopted to identify and communicate to the UN any resource and capability gaps that inhibit ability to protect civilians. Silvanus Kremera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, is coming to you live from Johannesburg. Africa Rise and Shine is the name of the show. Thank you for listening. Let's get news headlines now with Tracy Bungard. Thank you, Asanda. It's unclear if Burundi will heed the call to postpone its elections following yesterday's regional summit. Five people have been killed and eight others wounded in a suicide bombing in Libya. And South Africa's Department of Home Affairs says it's cleared more than three quarters of its backlog of around 4,000 unabridged birth certificates that children will need from today to enter and leave the country with. Full bulletin at the top of the hour. Thank you, Tracy. Developing countries, which are also landlocked, are looking at ways of boosting their economic and trade competitiveness. The countries, known as LLDCs, are meeting in Livingston, Zambia, this week to discuss the Vienna Program of Action. This international agreement sets out a roadmap for the development of the LLDCs. Mwabakase Sebota, the ambassador of Zambia to the UN and chair of the group of landlocked developing countries, elaborates on the common challenges the countries face. They have a commonality of the lack, the inherent lack of territorial access to sea. We all know that uh, global trade is actually taking place on the seas, which basically means that the group of landlocked developing countries is essentially excluded from the global trade. And because of that, the group of landlocked developing countries have got uh, various challenges stemming from uh, the costs of uh, transportation to the seas as well as the transit costs in terms of uh, the border areas as well as uh, passing through other countries' territories. For them, landlocked developing countries to import raw materials, they have to pay three, four times the cost of transportation in comparison to their transit countries. So what can you do? In 2014, the group canvassed the support of all the United Nations member states 
We've got the transit countries who we are uh, dependent on for the transportation of goods. We've got our very good uh, development uh, partners who have been there to help us in terms of uh, uh, reaching our development aspirations. And we managed to come together and uh, we came up with a strategy or the outcome document of the Vienna Program of Action, which itemizes uh, six priority areas that are going to enhance economic development for the landlocked developing countries and aid in uh, trade competitiveness of our countries. What can other countries learn from the experience in Zambia? We have the double burden of being landlocked as well as uh, being at the lower end of the development arena. Zambia, of course, has come up with a number of strategies which are basically anchored on uh, development of our industries. Zambia being uh, a producer of raw materials, in particular copper, I think we are the number two in Africa at the moment, we have been producing a lot of copper as raw material and uh, exporting it. However, Zambia is now looking at uh, adding value to uh, the copper that we have been doing as well as diversification of our economy. And in that, the Vienna Program of Action comes in very handy as it identifies the areas that the LLDC members need to concentrate on for us to diversify our uh, economies. How will you measure the success of the meeting in Livingston? The Livingston meeting is a high-level ministerial meeting. We are going to look at the strategies of mainstreaming the Vienna Program of Action into our own national development programs. But of course, we are looking at the issues of commonality here, what is uniting to the landlocked developing countries and ensure that we get the Vienna Program of Action and make it part of our own development agenda. And the meeting in Livingstone is expecting to have the participation of our political leaders, that is the high-level participation of our ministers because the political commitment is also very critical. The political will is uh, very important, political in terms of our leadership in uh, governance, but also, of course, uh, we are expecting to have the private sector participating because we know that as much as development agenda is an exclusive preserve of every government, the government's efforts must be complemented by the private sector. And hence, the Livingstone meeting is also attracting a good number of private sectors, both from our landlocked developing countries, from our transit developing countries, as well as the development partners, so that we can come up with a formidable product that is going to ensure that the good partnerships exist between the LLDCs, both in-country together with the private sector of uh, uh, the host, the LLDCs as well as the uh, external private uh, sectors and, of course, uh, uh, the critical role of partnerships of the LLDCs with the development partners who are also expected to participate in the Livingstone meeting. That's Mwaba Kasesebota, the ambassador of Zambia to the UN and chair of the group of landlocked developing countries, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. 
South African tourism associations are voicing their concerns around the new visa regulations, warning they will have a devastating impact on the country's highly competitive tourism sector. From today, parents will be required to provide unabridged birth certificates for minors traveling into and out of South Africa. The Home Affairs Department's decision to implement the changes has been met with resistance from both the tourism industry and airline operators. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by David Frost from the Southern African Tourism Services Association. Good morning to you, David. Good morning, Sunday. Morning to your listeners. Thanks for chatting to us. Uh, can you elaborate further on what the new visa regulations entail? Well, essentially what, what uh, the Department of Home Affairs is, is uh, requiring is that uh, children under 18 have to carry a copy of the unabridged birth certificate. And in the case of single parents traveling, a, a wad of... Uh, sort of affidavits and supporting documentation. We are the only country in the world that requires uh, this measure. Um, we do have an issue of child trafficking. Um, I think the Department of Home Affairs is, is, is uh, sensitive to that and they're trying to do something. But um, the measure that they've come up with is, uh, is, is one that is totally out of kilter with international best practice. I repeat, we're the only country in the world requiring this. And it's going to be an impediment um, to people travelling. There are, and we've 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 tried to engage with the department um, over a year. We've not had one opportunity to really put our case on the table. And when you look at international best practice, it speaks to a far more sophisticated, multi-agency um, approach where you target. Uh, potential sort of child traffickers through profiling, working with Interpol, and that's what the rest of the world does. So, you know, we're at, we're at, we're at, you know, we're just sort of, you know, sitting back and actually saying, why don't we look at international best practice? Let's go to, go towards that side of things. Let's come up with solutions that solve the problem, but do not impact negatively on a very crucial sector, um, namely tourism. And it's not only important to South Africa, it's important to our neighboring countries as well, as, as many um, international flights um, come in through through OR Tambo and people, a lot of tourists aren't able to transit through in two or three hours. They have to spend the night in Johannesburg and they will be subjected to the same, uh, same uh, um, level of requirements. What are the airlines saying about this? Well, I mean... It was. It's you know. If you're going to introduce a measure like this, the you know the onus is not on um, the home affairs officials, specifically at Oatambo and other airports or land borders. The, in particular, in terms of the sort of airline thing, it's 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 on the check-in staff of every single airline in the world because the prospective traveller, let's assume a family is travelling from Wichita in Kansas and they get get onto a Southwest Airways um, plane and they fly to New York. They've bought a prepaid, non-refundable holiday. They get to New York, and then they want to connect with SAA through to, through to Johannesburg. And only when they get to New York will the SAA counter staff, because they're the, they're the, they've been sensitized, will say, can we see the birth certificates? They don't have birth certificates, basically repatriated back to Wichita. They lose their holiday. And the PR disaster and, and, and et cetera is actually is actually immense. So the onus is, is on Home Affairs to communicate this to every single airline in the world. They clearly haven't done it. They only issued the standard operating procedures on the 18th of May. And since then, we've had five different variations of those procedures. It's not been communicated. It's, um, it's as I say, out of kilter with international sort of best practice. And it's going to lead to a, a massive reduction in uh, in uh, tourism to the country. The Daily Telegraph in the UK did a poll uh, 
um, recently, and 61% of people said it would put them off traveling to South Africa. We know from airline ticketing sales into South Africa, when we look at June this year compared to June last year, that we're 20% down. Mm. China has just um, basically sort of pulled out of flying into South Africa. Lufthansa has announced it's going to reduce capacity, and Virgin pulled out its Cape Town plan. These are all as a result of these visa regulations. So, you know, once again, we, we go back to government and we say, surely there's a better way to actually do these things. There is a balance to be struck, but, you know, involve us in those discussions. You know, don't, don't push us out for a year and not, and not consult, because that's... That's not what sort of happens in a, in a, in a, in a functioning democracy. We, we're a large constituency, but we are really willing and ready to work with government to find mutually acceptable solutions. What, what are those mutually acceptable solutions well, in your I view? Think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's measures that actually satisfy the safety and security issues and satisfy child trafficking issues while, don't, while, while not damaging tourism. So what we would look, look to in terms of child trafficking, as I've said, let's look at international best practice. Let's look at what other countries do in terms of, in terms of doing this. And it's certainly not introducing birth certificates. Um, in terms of the other leg, which is the requirement for in-person biometrics, these, these are, are the, the way that they've gone about it from home affairs is that you have to appear in person in in certain, you know, countries that require visas around the world. Mm. Um, and in many countries, we don't have a consular presence. So, for example, if you're in Colombia, we're asking people to fly to Caracas in Venezuela simply to get a visa to come to South Africa. They're not going to do it. Mm. We've also seen in China the, the uh, specter of these things coming in has decimated our market out of, out of China. So what we're saying there is that it's far better to do to capture the biometric data on arrival. We, had, we don't have to go outside the continent to look at best practice in this regard. Kenya, Tanzania and Senegal do this. They do it in Abu Dhabi. You know, so that, for example, is a, is, a, is a solution to the security issue, but it doesn't damage tourism. So that's, those are the types of issues that we would, uh, we would be seeking to craft together with government. And what is the department's response, the Department of Home Affairs, uh, regarding the issue's uh, response, or have they responded? Well, we look, you know, since this thing broke in June last year, we've written copious times to the minister requesting um, an opportunity to put our case on the table. We've commissioned two really large reports that actually look, firstly, at the, at the projected impact, and then secondly, one in April this year that measures the actual impact. And also, as I've been explaining, offers very workable solutions that solve solve um, the security and, and child trafficking issues. But, but it took us from June until end of September to finally get a meeting. He was impervious to all, all correspondence. So we finally get a meeting in, in, in September. At, after that meeting, the minister announced he's going to set up a task team to look at the implementation. And it's not first prize for us, but in a disciplined way, we were grateful for that and looked forward to that task team being convened. Bearing in mind it's his task team, it's not our task team, it's a ministerial. He never convenes the task team. So you take the minister at his word, but if he doesn't actually follow through on that, there's very little we can do. In addition, President Zuma in the State of a Nation address in February announced that government would prioritise a review of the visa regulations to strike a balance between state security and uh, tourism growth. That review has never taken place. So we've waited and worked patiently throughout this period, trying to work with our Minister of Tourism, trying to actually get a message through to Cabinet that these regulations are are heavy-handed and out of kilter, but our voice hasn't been heard. And, you know, here we are on the 1st of June, and they're simply steamrolling ahead.
All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, making time to chat to us, David, and giving light on this issue. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's uh, David Frost, CEO of the Southern African Tourism Services Association. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South African right-wing politician who masterminded the killing of the country's anti-apartheid hero was granted medical parole on Friday, setting aside an earlier decision by the Justice Minister to block his release. Clive Darby Lewis, who masterminded the 1993 assassination of Communist Party leader Chris Hani in an attempt to trigger a race war, had been serving a life sentence for the murder. Selina Ndobong reports. Darby Lewis, who was serving life for the murder of SACP leader Chris Hani, had challenged the decision by South Africa's Justice and Correctional Services Minister to refuse his application for parole. Darby Lewis has already served 20 years in prison and was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Minister Michael Masuta denied his request in January on grounds that his cancer was stage 3 and not stage 4, a prerequisite for medical parole to be considered, saying that there was nothing at the time to suggest that W. Lewis's condition was such that he could be rendered physically incapacitated so as to severely limit daily activity. But W. Lewis asked the court to review the minister's decision. Hani's murder in 1992 threatened to derail South Africa's transition from white minority rule to multiracial democracy, leading to riots across the country and triggering fears of a civil war. The Justice Minister in January granted a parole to W. Lewis's co-accused Eugene Dukork, who was jailed for his role in the torture and murder of scores of black South African activists in the 1980s and early 90s and was released by the Minister in the interest of nation-building and reconciliation. The parole board has not yet determined W. Lewis's release conditions. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong in Johannesburg. It's time to get uh, news from the economics front with Tabisolehu. South Africa's trade union, National Union of Metal Workers of Africa, has joined forces with other unions and civil society organizations to seek solutions to the country's electricity crisis. NUMSA has convened a four-day conference at which they will come up with ways of resolving the crisis. Government has set up a war room, which Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa is heading. The objective of the war room is to deal with South Africa's energy crisis. Workers say they've been excluded from it. NUMSA's Karl says... They will start their own talks. Unless we act together, not only will the crisis deepen, but our people would have been thrown into darkness. It is a crisis that requires us to look beyond trade union affiliation. OPEC oil supply in May climbed further to its highest in more than two years as increasing Angolan exports and record or near-record output from Saudi Arabia and Iraq outweighed outages in smaller producers. 
The boost from the organization of the petroleum exporting countries puts output further above its target of 30 million barrels per day. OPEC supply rose in May. The group meets on Friday and is not expected to alter policy as oil has risen to $65 a barrel. Lesotho's Minister of Finance, Mampo Nokakita, says that drastic measures are needed to curb the exponential growth of the wage bill for the civil service. Delivering the national budget speech, Kaketla said the size of the civil service wage bill has reached levels that cannot be sustained in the medium term as it currently consumes close to 50% of the current budget. Copper Belt Show Society Chair Bill Osborne says investor confidence in Zambia at the moment is very low. Meanwhile, President Edgar Lungu says the country must move away from perceiving mining as a mere source of revenue and see it as a catalyst for economic transformation. Speaking when President Lungu opened the 58th Copper Belt Mining, Agriculture and Commercial Show in Kitwe on Friday, Osborne said the country had to focus on ways of luring investors. Phosphate production at Tunisia's Metallo has partially resumed and shipments restarted after protesters agreed to temporarily end their sit-in over job demands. Metallo, which produces around 60% of Tunisia's phosphate output, has been closed by weeks of protests by local youths demanding employment and economic opportunities. The US dollar, 1214 South African Rand, 968 Botswana Pula, 720 in Zambia, 65 British Pound, 91 euro, gold $1191, platinum $1109 an ounce, brand crude $65.15 a barrel. For Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabi. So let's get news from the world of sports now with Fiki Lelingwati. In our sports update, this hour is starting off with athletics. Only two weeks after breaking the South African 200-meter record, sprinting sensation, Anna Sochobodwana improved on the mark at the Diamond League meet in Eugene, United States, uh, on the weekend. Jobodwana set the track on fire, running in the fifth lane with Olympic champion Justin Gatlin of the U.S. on his uh, outside to post a time of 20.04 seconds, shaving 0.02 seconds off the record he set in the Cayman Islands on the 16th of May. Gatlin, the 2004 Olympic gold medalist, posted a world-leading time of 19.68 seconds to win the half-lap sprint with Jobodwana crossing in second place, while Jamaica's Nikhil Ashmida begged the bronze in a time of 20.18 seconds. And South African athletes Gift Kelehe and Caroline Wozman put up stellar performances as they took the men's and women's Comrades Marathon titles to ensure that the 90th edition of the world's greatest Arthur Marathon is won by two South African runners. Kelehe only moved into the lead with a little over 25 kilometers remaining in the race, just outside of Camperdown. But he says despite a spirited challenge from Ethiopian runner-up Mohamed Hussein, he never felt under pressure. 
I never looked back because the minute I moved from the guys, I could see that they were not strong on the up run. So I realized that if I can make a break, let me just move on the on the on the up hill because I could see my helmet was was trying to run away. But the minute he's running the up hill, he was slower. Then I just put my head down and I go for him. And the minute I catch him, I just put my head down and I go. It was not a overconfidence. You know, sometimes when you want something, you must be confident and you must you must believe that it will happen. I had a belief that I can win this race and it happened today. God willingly, he gave me the chance to win the race. In the women's race, Caroline Wurzman of the Netbank Running Club finished at a time of 6 hours, 12.22 seconds, at the, and the vest lecturer says she had a strong start. And the gap she created carried her through the race to hang on for victory. Um, yeah, I think that I did probably go out a little bit too hard because the last 20Ks were a struggle. Like I was just hanging on and just praying that somebody wouldn't pass me. Um, but yeah, I think I was just fortunate to be able to have a big enough gap and to be able to hold it together towards the end. So the last split I got was from my coach who told me that the twins are one and a half minutes behind me. I don't know if he was just telling me that to like get me to go a bit faster, but I just had that in my mind the entire time. They're going to catch me. They're going to catch me. I didn't realize that Shanae was actually in second, so I'm so proud of her as well for us taking first and second home for South Africa today. And in football news, South African soccer side Lamontville Golden Arrows wonder boy Dion Hoto made history when he fired Namibia to the first ever Kosafa Cup title, netting a brace in the 2-0 win over Mozambique in the final match played at Moruleng Stadium in Northwest at the weekend. Former Santos player Ricardo Manetti was a player when Namibia failed to win this title in 1997 and 1999 and is proud to have made history now. Played two years ago, he played Nigeria, and I told him I never wanted to be a coach. Sometimes I, always, I also wanted to pack up and say, no man, this ain't working. And, uh, but you know, I was very persistent in, in, in my philosophy and uh, consistent in terms of what I wanted to do. Like Virgil said, it, sometimes it was so dark, you know, we could not see the light. But uh, eventually everything just clicked today. And I can tell you one thing, I've never prayed this much in my life. And I have to thank God for that, um, that, that you know, God answer prayers. And I'm, I'm, I'm just happy that everything came together for the country. It's not about me. I don't want to talk about Ricardo Manetti uh, winning for the first time. It's not about me. It's for the nation. It's for our president. It's for the association. It's for the everyday, the, the, the fan on the street. This victory and this cup is for you guys. And finally, with the golf news, Soren Kelsin has won the Dubai duty-free Irish Open at Royal County Down. The Dane has edged a three-man playoff for his fourth European Tour victory. Nick Dyer reports. It's six years since Kelson's previous win and in very different circumstances to the sunshine of Spain. A closing 76 for two under par doesn't sound impressive, but strong treacherous winds battered the course and he's proud to have held firm and then to birdie back down the 18th to see off Bernd Wiesberger and Eddie Pepperell. The latter had shot a remarkable bogey-free 69 in winds gusting up to 40 miles an hour. His reward is a place at the Open Championship along with Kelson and Tyrrell Hatton. Kelson says he turned 40 two weeks ago and wondered whether there'd be any further success. But he's played well at the last couple of events, controlled the nerves, and now claims one of the most prestigious titles going.
That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Figila, for that sports update. Let's uh, recap uh, the top stories from this uh, hour of Africa Rise and Shine. East African leaders urge Burundi to delay the elections. Nigeria's new president vows to defeat Boko Haram. And South Sudan peace talks set to resume this month. In economics, South African unions meet to discuss power crisis and in sports, Namibia win Kosafa Cup for the first time. Well, that's where we end Africa Rise and Shine for this Monday. Thank you so much for tuning in. That's from me, Asanda Matzaunyani, our producer, Pumuzora Makadza, technical producer, Revelino Ibrahim, and uh, Tracy Tabiso and Fikile. That's the rest of our team. Send us your views about our show. We'd love to hear from you. You get SMS plus 27-796-957-930 or email Email info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also tweet at Rise Shine Africa. Here's Metafix now taking us to the top of the hour with a track titled Living Dafur. Where others turn inside, you shall rise. <laughs>
Yeah, I'm